0: Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, Podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, church, we are continuing tonight in a study through Galatians, a series that we've called One Gospel. As we do, um, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3 tonight. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Galatians chapter 3. The verses will also hit the screens. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles available on the book table, and those are free, um, our gift to you. We'd love for you to take one home with you tonight. Over the past two Sundays, we've been in Galatians chapter 2 and explored a major concept conflict that happened between the apostles Paul and Peter in the early church. It was really a watershed moment in the early church where the two key apostles, Peter, the apostle in Jerusalem, the rock on whom Jesus would build the church, clashed with Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who Jesus had commissioned and called into ministry to bring the gospel out to everyone else in the world and and to begin that work. And they came together, and when they came together in the church of Antioch, they had agreed on what the core tenets of the gospel were, but there was a violation of it as Peter drew back from eating with the Gentiles and, and really what was at stake was understanding justification. Justification is a theological term to talk about our right standing before God and in God's presence and so our righteousness. And so Paul recognized that what Peter was doing was reintroducing Jewish law on top of what Christ had done and saying that it was required for us to be in right standing with God And that undermines the cross itself. So Galatians 2 clearly establishes the importance of our righteousness coming by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This Sunday, as we go to Galatians 3, the letter turns back to the churches in Galatia and turns to the issue of sanctification. Or how we are made holy, how we're cleansed, how we're made perfect and complete once we've been given the gift of right standing before God, that there are implications then for our lives and how we live. And so, this is what we read in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish?' Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here as we turn, some of you may have noticed that that in the English Standard Version and the translations in your hands, that it goes on and includes verse 6 with verse 5. We're going to see that next week as part of the next section. But what we have here is just really a series of questions. And it feels like, if we look at it in the context of the entire letter of Galatians, like Paul is, re, is reintroducing what he, where he started. He started the letter by saying, this is the gospel, this is the truth of what God has done for us. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Then he kind of breaks and talks about his own story and how he had gone to Peter and down to Jerusalem in two different visits and details those visits and and talks about this conflict with Peter that happened in Antioch. And then we get to chapter 3 and it's like he comes back around and says, All right, now back to you guys. Who has bewitched you? How could you be so foolish? What Paul is getting at here is an idea that the Galatian Galatian church had bought into, that they had come to Christ and said that Christ was the basis of their salvation, but they were living in a way that said, basically, this is where we started, but now, as as we are working to become more holy, we're turning away to other means. So we started with Jesus as the base, but we're going to pursue our own perfection before God. Which brings up for us the issue of perfectionism. It's something that we all struggle with to some level. I'm a perfectionist, kind of a closet perfectionist, though. Not a perfectionist in the ways you might think. I think typically when you hear the word perfectionist, we all have things that we think of with that term, right? We think of somebody that's highly detailed. And so, like, this afternoon, it's the weekend, we have three kids, there's five of us. You guys know what it's like to have, you know, you're really excited when you get laundry in your place in DC, but our unit is a stackable in the kitchen, so with five of us, it's like you can fit two pairs of pants in the, in the load of, of, of the wash. So we're just constantly running laundry through. When, I, when you think of a perfectionist, you think of somebody that gets all the folds perfectly, that has everything crisp so that it doesn't come wrinkled when you grab it. That is pure Alyssa. That is not me. I'm not a perfectionist in that sense. I'm not a perfectionist in the sense of like adult coloring books, which I don't know how those became a thing. That is not relaxing to me. That is stressful. And I don't know how you stay inside of those tiny lines with colored pencils. And so I'm not that kind of a perfectionist, but I am a perfectionist. And and, and so typically I move too fast, my mind is too distracted, I don't have the attention span for that kind of precision. But my perfectionism is a heart issue and again, I don't think this is unique to me So maybe you can even hear echoes of your own heart in as I describe mine I'm perfectionistic in my work Now it happens to be that my work is closely tied with a Biblical calling and and breaking down scripture and working with people's lives And so it's easy for me to justify my perfectionism and say you know what? I want every sermon I preach to be a home run every time I want it to be perfect. I want the illustrations to hit. I want you to laugh when I think something's funny, which doesn't happen at least 50% of the time. I want, but I want that laughter to lead towards something cutting deeply as the spirit of God is able to move in your heart and bring change in your life. I want everyone to hit every Sunday, every service. I want every one of you that's a member of this church to feel cared for and supported and loved and prayed for. I want every leader in this church to feel equipped and empowered and, and like, the leadership of this church is around them and has their back and, and like, they're, they're, the ministry they're doing is life-giving. I want every person that, that is in our city and every neighbor on my block to come to know Jesus and to find life in him. And all of those things are good things, but the problem is that if I'm perfectionistic in my pursuit of them then it's going to be crippling and crushing. Every one of those can be a reminder to me of my own inadequacy. And so I need this text tonight. And I think you probably do too. This perfectionism is something that we can be freed from. And so that's what we see tonight, is that we can, be free, we can experience freedom from perfectionism. And so the first reminder that Paul gives the Galatians here and the first point for us is to receive God's spirit with, with hearing or by hearing and with faith. So he reminds them of the foundation. He reminds them of the good news that we call the gospel. He says, he begins, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he reminds them, It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He said, Don't forget the foundation and where you've come from. So he goes on, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It remind It's a reminder back to, to chapter 1 as he began the letter saying, saying grace and peace has come to you from God, the Father and Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul says this is the gospel, that, that Christ died in our place for our sin, that our sin was credited to him and that he gives us his His righteousness, his right standing before God. That's the culmination then in chapter 2 as he's debating with Peter what justification is. And he says to him, listen, the law can only point out how short we fall of God's holiness. And he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the only responsibility that we have in understanding the good news of who God is and what he has done is to respond to it by hearing and in faith, through belief. That's what we receive the gospel by grace alone. It's a gift of God to give us Christ's righteousness. And it's through faith alone, that's belief, that we turn in hearing and belief and repentance. That's the pattern of the entire New Testament. That God's word advanced out in in the book of Acts. And as it advanced, people proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And as they preached and proclaimed the good news of the gospel, people would turn in belief and repentance. And the Holy Spirit would come and indwell those who believed. This is the calling we hear in Romans chapter 10. that, That the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, receives their right standing or righteousness before God. That, and it's, and it's, it's, you can, it's one I'm sorry, with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved so the, the good news is that Christ died for us and he was raised from death to life and that if we confess with our mouths that he is Lord, believe in our hearts that God has done what he has done and, and come in a posture of faith and repentance, we will be saved and brought into God's family no matter what your background is, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your education is, no matter who, who, where you've grown up, no matter who you are, that every one of us as human beings bears the image and likeness of God and in Christ that image and likeness is restored and renewed. And that's what we show in baptism. His unity with Christ and his death and his resurrection. It's a statement of faith in Christ and love for God as we commit to follow him. But we're not left alone in that pursuit. You see what he says? He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's saying, you've received the Holy Spirit. So, how did that happen? Did you earn your way into the Spirit showing up in your life? Is, are there things that we do that bring the Spirit's presence more fully? I think for us to understand that, we probably need to spend a little bit of time understanding who the Holy Spirit is. I don't think many churches do a very good job of talking about the Holy Spirit. He either becomes the fixation of churches, and they focus exclusively and and overly on the gifts that the Spirit gives us, or we don't really talk about the Holy Spirit at all and functionally believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And so we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit tonight. So that we can understand who he is. And why we get uneasy with him? Why do we get uneasy when the Holy Spirit comes up? It's kind of like when you were a kid and you go to family gatherings, there was always some relative, an uncle, maybe it was a grandparent, but somebody in your family who, like, all the kids were super excited because that person's really fun, but all the adults were a little uneasy because things get weird and out of control when that person's around. So I think we treat the Holy Spirit that way sometimes. We get uneasy because we're not quite sure what's going to happen, and it makes us uncomfortable. And I don't think that should be the way it is. The Holy Spirit's also not the force. Listen, in our family, we're big on Star Wars. We watch a lot of Star Wars. Simon is totally into it. He has Star Wars encyclopedias and knows, like, characters in, like, the backlogs of Clone Wars, the cartoon versions. Like, the kid is keyed in, and we, so we understand what the Force is. And I think there's a tendency among Christians to think that George Lucas has captured what the Holy Spirit is and who he is. And that just is not the case. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Christian doctrine is that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That they are in complete unity, a loving unity together. And so the third person of the the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. We see him in the Old Testament in creation. He hovers over the waters in creation, nurturing and caring as God brings life into the world. We see that he revealed God's word to the prophets as we read in Ezekiel and in other places in the prophets. We we also see in the prophets that they looked ahead to a time when God's spirit would be poured out and present with his people in a way that was different than anything experienced in the Old Testament covenant the prophet Joel looked ahead to this time he said and the Lord said through Joel and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams and your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and so the prophets looked ahead to a time when the spirit would have a unique function and role among God's people. When we turn to the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit's activity in, in the birth of Christ, that the Spirit is present as Mary conceives and in her virgin womb. We see the Spirit in, in Jesus' baptism, as we see all three persons of the Trinity come together, that, that while all the people were being baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, he was baptized by his cousin, John, and it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit didn't just show up at at Jesus' baptism. He was present then, leading Jesus throughout his life and ministry. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to follow the Holy Spirit. And so immediately after his baptism, in Luke chapter 4, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness, where he spent 40 days and 40 nights not eating. And at the end of that was tempted by Satan. And the spirit then was present in Jesus' life, but then he extended that to his followers. In Acts chapter 1, we read about right before he ascended into heaven that he had gathered his disciples together, and they still were clueless, like hopelessly clueless. He gathered together outside of Jerusalem, and they had they, they, come together, and they asked him, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They were still looking for him to be a political leader to be a military leader that was going to overthrow Rome. said, is this it? You gather us together because now you've, you've been raised from the dead and we're ready to go and take things over. And he says, uh, it's not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed his own, by his own authority. Which, did you see that this past week? That some yahoo was trying to predict the second coming of Christ again? It was supposed to be yesterday. So you don't have anything to worry about. It's over. Um, If you missed it, that's even better. Um, Whenever anybody says, I know the day and the time, don't believe them because they're saying they know better than Jesus, who said, I don't even know when I'm coming back. The Father's going to tell me. Um, How that works with Trinitarian unity, I don't know, but we're not going to get into that tonight. Um, If you want to go mull that over and write a paper for me, that'd be great. So he goes on to say, though, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. So he promised them the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power. And then in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. That, that on the, uh, during the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends onto the disciples, fills them. They go out and preach. Peter preaches his first sermon. The same guy that deserted Jesus stands up and preaches in Jerusalem. And his big hook, his big, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat stuff. He says, Hey, God sent the Messiah we've been waiting for. We killed him. And now you need to repent. And 3,000 people turn in repentance and belief that day and are baptized. the Spirit advances throughout the book of Acts and and, and descends on all who come to faith in Christ because of the promise that we read in in Ephesians chapter 1, that in him also, in Christ, when we heard the word of salvation, the, uh, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so there's a promise that the Spirit is given to everyone who follows Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God's Holy Spirit residing with you, present with you, in your life, involved with you. It's a seal, a down payment on the inheritance that you have in eternity with him. But uh, the Spirit's work with us is also intensely personal. In Titus chapter 3, we read as a confession and assurance tonight already in our service. In Titus chapter 3, where it says um, that, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You realize, this is a description, biblically, of what it's like to live apart from Christ. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. We live in a world that will tell you that your desires and your passions shape you and define you and that for for you to deny your desires and passions is wrong because you're denying your identity. God says to us in his word, the desires and passions that we have can destroy us. And we are enslaved to them on our own. That, that those desires and passions bring about malice and envy. And that it makes us, drives us to be hated and to hate others because we hate those who don't share those desires and passions. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is what the Holy Spirit does. In everything that the Holy Spirit does, we read in John chapter 4 is 16 that, that in everything he does, he glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, is to glorify Jesus. Always casting light and glory on Christ, pointing people to Christ, drawing our hearts to Christ, renewing the assurance of, of our salvation in Christ. And one pastor that described it this way to me one time, and I, I think he was on to something. Um, We live in a beautiful city. We live in a city that has a world-renowned skyline, even though it's very short. Part of the reason our skyline is so well known is because of the height restrictions on buildings in this place though because when people drive into D.C. or fly into D.C. they see the National Mall and they see the monument, they see the Capitol Dome, they see the other memorials that have been raised on the National Mall and that that are memories of moments and figures in our nation's history. And the best time to see the monuments, by far, is at night. They're fine during the day, but especially on a day like today, you don't want to be out there sweating with tourists. You don't want to be out there with, like, nobody loves showing up and enjoying the Lincoln Memorial and all of its solemnity and reading, you know, this temple, you know, the, it, above the, the massive statue of Lincoln and being surrounded by a middle school tour group. But you go at night and the crowds are thinned out, it's a little cooler. And everything is lit up, all the time. The glory of the Washington Monument is shown against the dark night sky. The glory of the Capitol Dome, those of you who were around through its re- renovation, and we re- remember the scaffolding that covered it for two years, and as they pulled that scaffolding down, we were reminded of the beauty of that structure, and as the lights shine on it at night, it glows against the night sky. See, we can, as we look at those things, we look at the glory of the structures and the monuments themselves, but most of us, if we go on a night tour of the monuments, aren't gonna look at those structures and say, man, those are some floodlights. Wonder what kind of wattage is in that bulb. Look at these things. Somebody, I mean, maybe if you're an engineer that's into lighting, you would, you would think that would be what you're impressed with. But really what the floodlights do is they, ca- they, they light up the glory of the monuments so that we can see them more clearly. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he shines light on Christ so that we can see him more clearly. So the beauty and glory of Christ, the beauty and glory of the gospel lights up in our hearts. He glorifies Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel. And he glorifies Jesus in, in the growth of God's kingdom as we are adopted in Christ as, God, as sons and daughters of the king. He glorifies Jesus in the lives of, of his followers, that as we follow Jesus, it's God's spirit that indwells us and illuminates God's word for us and guides us and equips us and empowers us to live as, as those who actually are reformed in God's image and likeness and reflect his glory more purely and more beautifully. We are so quickly prone to forget the centrality of Christ and the cross. It's so easy for us to lose sight of it. We're so prone to believe that we can somehow work for the Spirit's power to show up in our own lives and in our church. And we start to think about what are the things we can do to manipulate God into showing up. We equate the presence of the Holy Spirit as being a warm, fuzzy feeling in our gut rather than trusting that when Jesus says, wherever two or more of you are gathered together, I'm there in your midst and knowing that God's Spirit is always present with us. We don't have to call on him and invite him in as if he's not here. He is constantly with us. And so there's a constant call throughout Paul's letters, but here in Galatians, remember Christ. We've been given a great gift of God, grace. The word grace is literally the word charis, and that means a gift has been given. And so right before chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, it says that we don't nullify or cancel out the grace of God, this gift, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So we've been given a great gift from God, his grace shown through Jesus, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And then he goes on to the same language, that we received the Spirit, that is gift-giving language as well, that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God to us. It's his presence with us, sealing us, guaranteeing us that he will bring us through to the end. And so if you're here tonight, no matter where you've come from, no matter where you're at in your own spiritual journey, whether you're here and you're not a Christian, or whether you're here and you've been walking with Jesus a long time, the call to us begins in the same place. When you hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed, My prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God would open your ears so that you could hear and respond in faith and belief. That you'd be willing to trust yourself wholly to Christ and receive the gift of salvation and right standing before God. That you would receive God's Spirit in his presence. If you're not a Christian, you can turn to Christ tonight in belief and repentance and be saved and sealed with the Spirit of God. If you're here and you are a Christian, the call never changes. If you're anything like me, I need a daily reminder to let go of my own perfectionism To let go of my own belief that that if I do the right things and say the right prayers in the right ways and do say the right mantras and read enough Bible verses and check off the right disciplines and and make sure that I'm walking the right way and thinking the right way and and acting the right way and saying the right things that God's Spirit is finally going to show up because I've finally gotten to the point where I'm doing well enough for Him to be present in my life. You need to let go of that. The Spirit of God is a gift from God to you. You can walk in freedom. Number two, we need to be perfected by God's spirit, not by works. He goes on to say, are you so foolish? <laughs> don't, don't you sometimes read some of this stuff and go, Paul, can't you be a little more pastoral? <laughs> like a little gentler with these guys? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now perfect, being perfected by the flesh? So the the way for us to be freed from perfectionism is to be perfected by God's spirit, not by our own works. The word flesh here, we need to understand. I think if you've grown up in the church, there's a tendency to, there's times when the word flesh means sinful desires, the things that rebel against God, the thing that wars against the spirit of God in us. There's places in the New Testament where that is very much the, the way that that word needs to be interpreted. Here, I don't think so. I think it's saying all of us, who we are. He's saying, is, are there ways that we can achieve our way before God? Is that where, how we achieve our perfection? Or are we being perfected by God's spirit? Which one is it? And there's a big debate in Christian circles about what happens in the Christian life after justification. So justification, we're made righteous. We are in right standing before God. That is only through Christ. That is by grace alone, through faith alone. And what about sanctification, being made holy? And so one camp says that it's positional, like justification. That you you are given a position of being holy and cleansed and perfect, made complete in God's sight. Another camp says, no, it's not positional, it's progressive. This is a progression over life that we become more and more like Jesus the longer we walk with him and become more holy over time. And so there's the, these two camps kind of fight against each other. And you can see the, the danger, though, of falling into one of those camps solely because if you just fall in the positional camp, then you fall into a fire insurance prayer. Some of you don't know what I mean by that. That's, like, I don't know how many times I was saved in church growing up. I only started going to church in middle school. But the number, I, it didn't take long for me to realize, oh, when you have that moment where the, whoever it is that's speaking says, all right, everybody close your eyes, bow your heads, repeat these words after me. Not aloud, you can do it in your head, in your heart, God, God will hear you. And if you said those words and I'll raise your hand or look up at me and you hear, yeah, I see you. I see you. Just hands all over the room. And then each of you going, are, are there, Like, oh, <laughs> um, but it didn't take me long to realize that if you did that, then you went to another room and usually in that other room, there were snacks and cookies and I'm driven by food. So I knew I can go and raise my hand and say that prayer again. And maybe I didn't get it right last time, but what do I have to lose? I can remember bringing my friend with me to church and when they were doing that, like elbowing him and saying, hey, you gotta raise your hand. He's like, I don't think I want to. I don't care, there's cookies. Some of us have been raised, some of you have been raised in places where what has been ingrained into you is that you say a prayer and you're in and you don't really have to touch it again. That's a pure positional sanctification perspective that doesn't actually account for being formed into the likeness of Christ over your lifetime. But if you fall into a pure progressive perspective, then, then it can lead to the cross meaning nothing to you and becoming a closet legalist in very spiritual language. And so a little secret for us today, it's both. We don't have to choose here. And we are positionally cleansed by Christ. The Spirit is given to us, and we are made holy and perfect. And that's why throughout the New Testament, it calls the people of God and people in churches saints. Even in, like, Corinth, where the church had gone off the rails, they're still called saints, to the saints in Corinth. And so saint isn't like Roman Catholic saint where you're prayed to. It's just that you are one of God's people, holy ones. But there's also a clear teaching in scripture that there's obedience and walking with Jesus in our lives. And that, that as we walk with Jesus, we are fashioned more into his image and likeness. And it shows up in our lives. And so it's both of those things. This is something the Protestant reformers fought for as well. Official Roman Catholic dogma includes works of righteousness to earn our standing before God. It's not Jewish law, like what we read about in Galatians, but it is a separate law on top. So even sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, are, are, are given as means of grace, and if you're not connected to the Roman Church, then you aren't receiving means of grace, and you can't possibly hope to be made holy. You have to earn your way, and that's where purgatory was created as a schema, because you're not good enough to get in, and so you have to work off some extra time in purgatory, and limbo, in between. The reformer said, no, Christ has done the work. And we walk with him, but it's not by our works, it's by the Spirit's work in us that we are made more holy. But for us, we can do a little self-identification tonight um, and find out where we land. If you are totally unconcerned with pursuing holiness and just fall into the pure positional camp, whether you knew that or not... If you don't have any conviction over your own sin or see any need for growth, then, then I would say that you're actually pretending. You don't have a clear view of yourself, and I would wonder if the Spirit of God is really present and working in you. You might need to get saved tonight. But for some of you, and I think most of you, this is probably where it's going to hit more, and it's what Paul is addressing in this text in particular, is that you are, if you are a Christian, the Spirit is really present in your life. You're seeing fruit of the Spirit's presence, which we'll read about in Galatians 5, that, that you're seeing patience and love and joy and, and, and self-control and, and the fruit of the Spirit working through you. There's still a reality that law will never stop to be a temptation. And the longer you spend time in church, the more of a temptation it becomes because it gives us control. We want measurables on whether we're actually hitting the standards that we think we should be hitting. It makes us feel more secure than just trusting that God's going to do it. It shows up in symptoms that, that in our own lives, when we get caught doing something wrong, I don't mean when you come to conviction on your own and confess something. We all know there's a difference there, right? It's different to come to conviction on your own and to confess, I have, I have done wrong. And you come to a friend and say, I have sinned against you and I need to, re- I need to come clean on it. That's different than getting caught doing something and having to, to fess up at that point. When we get caught, you want to know if you're a closet legalist and trying to pursue your own perfection? Then there will be one of two responses. You'll either just be dismissive of it if you know how to play the game well, and say, yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Let's move on. Or you will be crushed. I started tonight by talking about the the perfectionism that I pursue and the the way my heart gets twisted on these things. Man, you wanna know how that shows up. Talk to Alyssa about how fun it is to hang out with me on a Sunday night. When I'm rehearsing what's happened through the day, every meeting I've had, every interaction I've had, my mind is spinning on everything I said in the sermon, and what did and didn't hit, and what did and didn't go well, and when I left my notes, and whether that was spirit-led or whether that was just a complete disaster. I'm walking through everything, why? Because I feel that press toward perfection that's, when you get down to it, is just stupid. It, It doesn't make sense. Another symptom is that you will become a keen evaluator of other people's holiness. You ever find yourself completely irritated by everybody around you because you just can't believe how short they fall of God's calling on them? You just can't believe that they can't get over that issue? At some point, you should take a step, take a step back and look again at what the Bible says about who we are and realize that the church is a hospital that Jesus came for the sick, that every one of us is in desperate need for help, and people struggling with sin and doubt, and people struggling with fear and anxiety, that if, if people are willing to actually bring that up to the surface and expose that, then that brokenness is a gift from God, because it's actually evidence of the Spirit working in them. And the more that people put up a front of perfection, the less you're actually seeing the reality of their hearts. It's ultimately an issue of trust, though. In Philippians 1, we, we have a, a well-known and well-recited verse that, that he who began a good work in you will, be faithful, will, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So The question is, do you believe that's true? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit of God is the one who brings us to completion? Or do you believe that God has tasked you with the role of managing another person's sanctification? Third, if we wanna be free from perfectionism, we need to rest in God's presence and power. And this one gets hard. And he goes on and says, says, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, if, if we really are closet legalists and perfectionists, then what, the way that's going to show up is that most of our relationships will be transactional at their core. This is what happens with a counselor. Counselors are great. I see a counselor, Alyssa sees the same counselor, sometimes we see him separately, sometimes it's together, sometimes the appointments get made, and she's like, yeah, I saw saw John this week, and I'm like, oh no, (laughs) what did I do? And so we love our counselor. But there's also reality that as much as I love John, he's probably not gonna spend a lot of time with us if we're not paying the bills that he gives us at the end of our sessions. It's a transactional relationship where we, we have an understanding and he speaks into our lives and it's open and it is a friendship, but it's transactional. Now, I know that's an extreme example, but it's a reality that most of our relationships end up that way. That, that the, the, our actions toward people usually have a direct result on, their, on the person's willingness to be involved in our lives, on their openness with us and the intimacy we have with them. And if we're honest, most of us approach God transactionally. It's a matter of what we need to do to make sure that he's happy with us. What we need to do to to experience God's presence and power. And it shows up in our suffering. I think that's why Paul introduces it here. Something had happened in the churches in Galatia. They had suffered in real ways. And Paul's saying, it wasn't in vain. And so often, our, our transactional relationship with God shows up in our suffering because what happens is that, that when that we get surprised by suffering, when hard things happen, our first reaction is, is, God, what's going on? We find ourselves retreating back to like, hey, I'm doing the right things. I go to church. I even give a little bit. I, I serve, I'm involved in people's lives, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, I'm, I'm pursuing you, and why, why is this happening? We start to misunderstand and misinterpret our suffering, and so when, when tough things happen to us and we encounter hard things, we think that's God's anger toward us or his absence from us. We've been conditioned that way by relationships throughout our lives because every one of us has experienced the pain of a broken relationship that has led to somebody walking away. And it's hard to get down to the root causes, and, and so we'll carry shame and guilt because of the brokenness in relationships we've experienced. And, and, and so as we come before God, it's hard not to have those experiences inform our understanding of how he's going to respond to us. And if, if we get caught up in the middle of that with trying to earn our own perfection and earn our own holiness, then we'll stuff those feelings and get really uncomfortable with reading the Psalms. And we'll be bored by it because we're like, I don't know see what this has to do with anything. It's easier to have straight up instructions. I mean, do, do you ever spend any time reading the cries of the heart that we get in the Psalms? And do you ever ask the question of whether or not your own prayer life looks dishonest? David comes before God in Psalm 13 and says, How long, O Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Can you imagine if somebody prayed that at your community group this week? Like, would you have a desire to pull them aside afterward and be like, Hey... God hasn't forgotten you. And try to correct their prayer or slide it in in the middle of the prayer time, like kick in after that and be like, God, thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us. <laughs> I pray that you would encourage my brother or sister right now, and then you, they would feel your presence so that they wouldn't feel like you've forgotten them. Because when we hear that kind of a tilt, we're like, nope, we gotta straighten that up. <laughs> or in Psalm 109, When David's crying out about his enemies and and crying out, May his days be few, and may another take his office. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has, and may strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. And we read that, and we're like, yeah. (laughs) We're not allowed to pray that way, right? When Jesus says, pray for your enemies, I don't think that's what he means. But what we see in the Psalms so often is a raw honesty that so seldom actually characterizes our own prayer. Why? Well, because... If we're trying to earn God's presence and power in our lives, if we're trying to earn our own perfection before him, we're not going to want to reveal that side of us because we're scared that he'll leave us if we do it. So how do you earn God's power and presence? How do you see him at work right in our lives and in our church? And we need the same reminder that the Galatians needed. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's by hearing with faith. That's what we're called to. If we earned any of it, it would give us a reason for pride and pride is self-worship and God won't tolerate that because it's idolatry. But Christ endured the absence of the Father on the cross so that you you would never have to fear it. Christ was forsaken so that you would never experience God leaving or forsaking you. The good news is that we can rest in that. We can rest in and trust that Christ's work is really enough. And that can make it so that we can cry out in honesty before God and cry out whatever it is that in our hearts and expose the junk within us and expose when we feel abandoned and you don't have to be afraid that he's going to walk out on you. He's big enough. He can take your anger. He can take your frustration. He can take your, your disappointment and your hurt and he can absorb those and still turn to you and look on you with a smile as a loving father. But church, it's only by hearing and with faith that we receive the Spirit of God. It's by hearing and with faith that we are perfected, being perfected actively by the Spirit of God. It's by hearing and with faith that we rest in God's presence and power. And so, listen, today, you need to hear that it's okay that you're imperfect. It's okay that you have wounds that are deep within your soul that you don't know if they'll ever heal. It's okay that you have doubts and fears that you don't know how to cope with. It's okay that you have sinned. God knows it and he loves you. You're, some of you are carrying shame over what has not even things you've done, but what's been done to you. You need to hear that you can be freed from pursuing your own perfection because we're given holiness in Christ. I'm an imperfect pastor. I'm an imperfect man. And so let's stumble forward together. We desperately need a perfect Savior that'll open us up to be united with a loving father and give us the gift of his spirit bringing us to perfection in his image. As a church, we wanna be a spirit-filled and spirit-led people. We wanna see the Holy Spirit at work in our midst knowing that he gives us gifts for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ. What that means is we need to continue to lean in together by hearing with faith. We I mean, to pray that God would move powerfully in our city and pour out his spirit in this place, that his spirit would indwell his people and illuminate and guide and equip and empower us as a church to glorify Jesus and to join him as a spotlight on Jesus' beauty and his glory. And Jesus promised us that hell itself can't prevail against God's church. And we can trust God to do the work. In Ephesians chapter 3, And to him who's far, able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Father, would you help us to believe that? And forgive us for our own pursuit of perfection. Show us what your spirit has for us. Would you help us to experience the, the deep assurance? that comes as your spirit fills us. And I pray right now, Father, for all of us in this room that you would would open our ears to hear the gospel and move in our hearts to respond in faith and repentance. That we'd hear and believe and be freed to live. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.